This morning, if you would turn in Romans, the first chapter with me. I would like to read just the first seven verses, which are the introduction to Romans, which we're dealing with primarily right now. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> from there, just a few things this morning that are on my heart to speak about this portion. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle, or a called apostle, to be is not in the original, separated unto the gospel of God, or separated unto the good news of God, which he promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I want you to notice that especially, it's in parenthesis, but it's the base of all that we believe is what God said in the Old Testament. I would remind you that the New Testament church had no scriptures. John didn't write his gospel till 96 AD, which was over 60 years after Jesus died. It was believed up till just recently, I guess within the last two weeks or so, that probably uh, one of the oldest in the New Testament would be Thessalonians, which would be written, say, where, somewhere around 58 or 60 A.D., somewhere in that area. But I see that uh, just this morning, I was listening to the radio for a few minutes, that they have now discovered what they believe is the Gospel of Mark, and the date on it is 50 A.D., which would be within two decades of Christ's uh, death on the cross of Calvary, within two small areas of his life and death. And so the earliest books, the earliest ones, would have to be at least 20 years after Christ's death or so. And uh, the whole of the Old Testament was all that they had. The disciples did not have the New Testament. The apostles did not have the New Testament to use to witness for Jesus Christ. They only had the Old Testament. Christ was preached from the Old Testament. That's why Paul says salvation is of the Jews, because it had to come from the Old Testament. And so it says here in this second verse, which he had promised. Notice it's the gospel of God, which he promised before time. This revelation that we have in the New Testament is not something new. It was already prophesied of beforehand, you see. So this is a promise that God has made by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom... We have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, not to be saints, called saints. You are called a saint if you belong to Christ, because saint means separated unto. You are separated unto God by Jesus Christ. 
So you are called saints. I've said this before, but saints are not those who have died and have been made saints by someone else. Saints are those who are saved. If you read each of the epistles, you see that it's uh, the introduction to the saints at Colossae. These are living people. To the saints at Philippi, to the saints at Corinth, wherever Paul would travel, wherever they would go, it would be to the saints there. So you are, if you are saved this morning, if you really know Christ as your Savior, you are Saint so-and-so and Saint so-and-so. Now, I'm sure you're not going to name yourself that before other people. They'll never believe you. But before God, and we're only dealing with God here. We're only dealing with God's economy and man. Before God, you are called saints. And as I look over you and I think of myself or John down here or Bob here or any of us, and I think, you know, of, of being St. Martin or, or St. Robert or St. John or something like this, it's a tremendous thought. But this is actually what it is in the God's eyes. And all he's saying is, Martin, you are separated to me. You are separated from the world, and you are separated unto me. And so we're called saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's just have a word of prayer together. Father, as we look in thy word, we pray that thou it's blessed to our hearts. Lord, how precious is thy word just this last verse we've read. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we're so thankful that your grace, your unmerited favor, is offered to the whole world. Whosoever will may come. It is not the Father's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Father, we're so thankful that's your will. And we pray that we, as those whom you have named saints, may do the work you've called us to do in seeking to bring others to the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ and faith in the cross of Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the epistle of Paul to the Romans deals especially with the Gentiles and their problems. The Jews were there, but they were not legalizers. This was their usual method. When the Jews were in Galatia, it was a different matter. There, they were legalizers. They said they acknowledged Christ. These are the Jews now who came to Christ. They acknowledged Christ, but they also believed that the law had to be brought in alongside of Jesus Christ so that they legalized everything they believed. They still held to rules. 
They did not hold to the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to give a new life, a new strength, a new power to overcome sin. But they legalized it. They said, yes, Christ is Messiah, but they didn't understand what Messiah really meant. To them, Messiah meant he would be a king and he would establish a great earthly kingdom and the Jews would inherit that kingdom and the Gentiles would not. And so the Jews were those who were not legalizers at all in Rome, but they had a pride within themselves. They claimed superiority because of their prior revelation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, you see. They claimed that they were superior to the Gentiles. Paul had to deal with them in many ways. He had to deal with them concerning the fact that they had said that they had special favor with God because of Abraham. Just from the fact that they descended from Abraham gave them special favor with God regardless of life or anything else. He had to deal with the messianic kingdom and the fact that they felt that this kingdom on earth would only have to do with the Jewish people. He had to deal with them in their relationship to the courts of the land because they refused as Jews to submit to the courts. They believed that they were a law unto themselves, that only God was their judge. And Paul continually has to deal with them on being responsive to the governments and to law in Romans. We should be doing that today with everyone. God had to do it with the Jews to make them realize that they have to be responsive to rulers and kings and those in authority. The same thing must be today. But for all of us, I want to say this to young and old. I don't care who you are. It makes no difference. You are responsible before this government of the United States to obey. The magistrates of this land are there for our good, not for our evil. God says that all governments are for man's good. And let me say this, no matter how wicked a government is, it still has some controls. And if you take out any government, no matter how wicked it is, conditions in that nation will get worse. Let the hum humanity, by and large, just have complete freedom to do what they want in any nation. I don't care whether it's communism or anything else. Take all the restraints off. Take everything out of the way. Abolish the police force. Abolish everything and say, it's all up to you now to keep order. You'd all stay home and lock the doors and say, that's it. None of you would ever go out of your houses. So Paul has to deal with this with these people, that they come to realize that there are 
things that must be obeyed. He has to deal with the Jews. He has to deal with the Gentiles. And he has to bring them all in together guilty before God. You know, I mentioned last week, and I think it's very important too, I mentioned, you know, that there are many great words which are used theologically. Two of those words are very well known. Paul is the great expositor of one of those words, and John is the great expositor of the other of those words. They're used in theological seminaries all over. Those two words would be eschatology, which has to do with final things, final judgments, all the final culminating time that the earth shall experience, the time when all shall be finished and eternity, which comes from the past into the future, shall finally be thrust before man and man have no deliverance because the final judgment and assize of God has come. And that word eschatology, the great eschatologist is John in Revelation. He reveals the final things of God, the last book of the New Testament. Paul has a great part in it. You can read in Thessalonians, you can read in Philippians, you can read in other epistles of the second coming of the Lord. You can read in 1 Corinthians. You can read these things. But the thing is that John is the great expositor, the great eschatologist, for he speaks of final things. If you were to look it up, incidentally, in, a, in Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, you would find that in this case of this word, it has no specific reference to Christ. In biblical terms, as far as we are concerned, it does. But not according to Webster's Dictionary. On the other hand, Paul is the great soteriologist. For he deals with the doctrine of sin and the salvation of Jesus Christ. There's no salvation necessary without sin. And so he is a great expositor of God as to sin and salvation. And it's in Jesus alone. If you were to look that up in Webster's Collegiate, you will find out that it has specific reference to only one, and that is to Jesus Christ and the salvation from sin in him. So that these two great doctrines are expounded most by the apostle that Jesus loved so much, John, who wrote five books of the New Testament, and then by Paul, who wrote 13 epistles. Romans and Galatians are the two great expositions on sin and salvation. Sin is never separated from salvation. The wages of sin is death, but the what? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see? God hath made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made, this is salvation, the righteousness of God in him. 
You see how they dovetail together. Because from the very beginnings in Genesis, we find the one thing God is going to have to deal with immediately is the fall of man and his sin, and how will he save him? And all from the councils of eternity past was planned by God and all down through the whole of the Old Testament. The bloodline runs that there's only one way for man to be cleansed from sin, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm speaking especially of the second verse of Romans here, that in the prophets of old, God prophesied of the gospel of God that was to come. It's a very important theme because without it, we have no Bible. Take the Old Testament away and we have zero. You have a revelation merely made 2,000 years ago. And it is clear that salvation is of God and is of the Jews. And that from the very beginnings... God had to point out from Genesis 3.15 on that the only salvation would be in the seed of the woman. And that seed, Paul says in Galatians, is Christ. And down through that whole Old Testament, we see God is heading man toward that one great point in history where his son comes foreordained from the foundations of the world that it tells us in the book of Acts that he should come and suffer death upon the cross. And God, it says, according to his determinant foreknowledge of all that man would be in his wickedness and his sin, made provision that the Lamb would come finally who would take away the sin of the world. And all down through the Old Testament, there is this continual theme running through it of the sacrifices, the sacrifices of the Lamb. If we begin in the very beginning, we have it with Adam and Eve, don't we? We have it when God, when Adam took from the fig leaves, he took from the figs the leaves and put them and made an apron to cover his nakedness after they fell in sin. And God has to say, now, Adam, if you think that that's the way you forgive and sin, you forget what I said completely. I said to you that the day you ate of the tree of the knowledge and evil, you would die. Now, what did you think that putting your hand up and taking a fig leaf down and making it an apron ever did for you? So God said, I'll provide the way. And he provides them with coats of skins, which provided that an animal sacrifice had to be made. A sacrifice that said they, without the shedding of blood there would be no remission of sins. And so he starts right in with Adam. And Adam undoubtedly passed it on to his first two sons, to Cain and to Abel. And when the two sons come forth and they bring their sacrifices to God, how did they know to bring sacrifices to God? Because Adam, their father, told them. Eve told them. There's a way you have to come to God. You have to bring an offering to him. And so the two of them bring an offering. Now, there was nothing wrong 
with Abel's offering intrinsically as to value. But there was something wrong in the way Abel approached God and Cain approached God. There was that which was wrong with Cain's approach in that he brought of the fruit of his ground. Abel brought a more excellent sacrifice, as Hebrews told us, as we have read it, and it was a, the reading of the word of God that said that that sacrifice that Abel brought was acceptable to God because it was of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. But Cain's sacrifice, beloved, was not accepted of God. Not accepted of God. Because Cain did something that was completely reversed. Let me say this. Abel brought his sacrifice, and it was showing that he believed what his father had told him. Man, I want to say this. That's what we need today. He believed what his father and his mother told him about God. Young folks, if your mother and dad know Jesus as their personal Savior, will you listen? It cost Cain plenty because he refused to listen. If Cain had reversed his offering, he'd have been all right. God says to Cain, Cain, if you do well, I'll accept your sacrifice. You do what I tell you to do. You do what your father told you to do. Your father tried the same thing as you're doing. Your father reached up and he picked for the fig leaves to cover himself. What did I do? I stopped it. Your father told you that. Your father told you, Cain, Cain, don't you ever do it this way. You have to do it God's way. And God's way is by the sacrifice the putting to death of an innocent substitute so that you know for sin someone has to die, either you or a substitute. If Cain had brought his offering to God as Abel did, God would have accepted then that which Cain had brought afterward. The trouble was that what Cain was doing was this. He was trying to put sanctification before justification. He was presenting his good things to God. He was presenting himself to God in all his goodness. Lord, look what I've produced. He is the best of the fruit of my ground, and I bring it to thee. But he did not put justification first, the forgiveness of sins. You see, the trouble with us is this, that we get an idea that all the good things we do are acceptable to God. They're not, unless first... We've done the first things God has asked us to do, and that is the cleansing of the blood of the Lamb. 
I would remind you that in the curse which God put upon man, he also put upon the earth. And God cursed man and he cursed the earth. And all that it bore is cursed of God. The trouble was that here was Cain bringing an offering to God that God had cursed and was saying, God, you'll accept my offering without the offerer being cleansed. And since man was God-conscious and the creation was not, the responsibility of man was that his heart and soul should be right with God first. And once he's been cleansed from sin, then everything he produces, his works, all that he is, is blessed of God. If we understand that all that is in the world is at enmity with God. The creation is waiting in Romans 8 for the redemption, for the manifestation of the sons of God. All creation is waiting. Why? All creation is under the curse. So for us to bring anything to God and present it to Him without first the shedding of blood indicates we know nothing about remission from sin and the offering we're bringing to God, we forget, is under the same curse. And so when Cain came, he presented to God that which God had cursed and said, here, accept this. And God merely looked at Cain and it says he had no respect to Cain's offering, but to Abel's offering he had respect because Abel had brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. He had sacrificed as God had asked him to sacrifice and he was justified before God because he'd been cleansed in the blood. He knew someone had to die for sin. And Abel, though dead, he yet speaks to us. As Ernie read this morning in Hebrews, he speaks to us. It's the only way of salvation is in the blood, in the sacrifice. Cain's way is the way of death. We can try. We can have all of our charities we can do all of the good deeds we think we should do. We can be kindly. We can be filled with loving thoughts. We can have all these things, and they are nothing to God. Now do you understand why God says, all your righteousness is as filthy rags in my sight? Because everything's under the curse. And you don't have anything to offer. The flowers, John, that you have down in your flower shop are under the curse. Those beautiful pianos you tune, France, under the curse. You can't present your music. The choir can't present its singing. We can't present our labors. We can't present anything because the whole world is under sin. And all of creation has been cursed of God. So he says, if you bring anything to me of the fruit of the ground, of anything you've made with your hands, 
anything. It's cursed. But if you first come to me and you admit that you are a sinner needing salvation in the blood, I'll cleanse you from sin. And then I'll accept your offering because it comes from a heart made clean in Jesus Christ. Let me read in connection with that over in Deuteronomy 28, if you'd like to turn there. Deuteronomy 28. You know, it's hard for people sometimes to understand this. You know, see, when God says, all your righteousness is as filthy rags in my sight, they say, how can this be? How can this be? God is merely saying, don't you see, there's only one way you can come to me, and the only way is through the blood of the Lamb, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New In the old, it was the lamb's blood that was slain, the lamb's blood that cleansed from sin, that covered for sin. In the New Testament, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that takes away all our sins. He died for the sins of the whole world. But look at Israel. Here, Deuteronomy 28, verse 2. All these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if thou wilt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. I want you to notice what it says. Blessed shall be in the city. Oh, man, we better stop here. We got a long way to go. Fun city. Fun city is hardly under the blessing of God. Why? No hearkening to the voice of God. There'll be no blessing in the city. But notice, if we will hear his voice, these blessings shall come upon you and what? Overtake you. And I want to tell you this, if under the Old Testament covenant this is true, imagine how much more it's true under the New Testament covenant with the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us from sin. See what it says? Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body. Blessed shall be thy children. Blessed the fruit of the ground and the fruit of thy cattle and the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. You know, this is not talking now about luxury, all right? Just so we get no mistake here. God's not saying, now listen, you obey my commandments, you listen to me, you come the blood-appointed way for forgiveness of sin. You come the way I've directed you, Israel, and you know how I've directed you about the blood sacrifices. You come, and then you'll have luxury. Unfortunately, the Jewish people believe this. Unfortunately, the Jewish people took Abraham and saw that Abraham's possessions were so great and that the servants of Abraham's household were able to defeat kings. 
And because of the blessings of God upon Abraham, the Jewish people came to believe that the sign of God's blessing was money. Was gold. Possessions. All you have to do is to look in our cities. The merchants. God said to the Jews, ye shall be the merchants of the earth. That's his own word. Ye shall control the money bags of the earth. But your soul shall be, what? Lean. Because they did exactly the same thing we're in the wilderness, remember? Lord, let us go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. Moses, you brought us out here to die. Let's go back to the flesh pots of Egypt and the onions and the leek and the garlic and let us enjoy ourselves. Why should we come out in this wilderness and die with you? And the same thing happens today. They believe that the blessings of God are involved with possessions. But God here tells them, it won't be luxuries that I'm going to supply. I'll bless your basket. I'll bless your cities. I'll bless your kind. I'll bless you if, it's always conditional, always an if, if you will obey me. Beloved, I don't honestly believe in my heart that there's hardly one of us here today that actually deserve blessing from our God. And the minute you get to think that you deserve blessing, you've committed the great sin of pride. We don't deserve a thing. And if God looks upon our nation and upon us as individuals, we'd have to say, God, we don't know how you can even stand us. Because here we believe that you've entrusted into our hands this glorious gospel of thine own precious Son, that the blood of Jesus Christ, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that you put it in our hands and we hold it tightly to ourselves and we're selfish and we love our salvation and we're going to heaven and let the rest of the world go to hell. It must be the attitude of most Christians since hardly any speak to souls about Jesus. And yet God says, all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. And if Israel would be so blessed, how much more would the Son of God bless us if we turned to him and obeyed him in every facet of our being, if we were really, as this portion says, separated unto God, separated unto God, Really mean it when you say, I'm separated to God. I love like Jesus loved. I'm tender like Jesus is tender. I'm compassionate like Jesus is compassionate. For God is love. My children know it because they see the love of Jesus in me. And I want to tell you, I've 
seen more souls won to Jesus than the tears of a mother or the tears of a father kneeling beside their child than ever from caustic bawling out and breaking them down and forcing them to do this and forcing them to do that. That's not the love of Jesus. I'd remind you that our God is a wooing God. He draws souls unto himself. He draws them unto his Son. How does he draw them? In the bonds of love. God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Lord shall cause thine enemies. Notice, thy basket and thy store shall be full. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in. Blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. Let me say this. If this nation had spent the time and the money that they have spent on armaments, that we have spent on trips to the moon, that we have spent in every way, and instead, this nation had been on its knees before God. Russia would be nothing. Because Israel never won her own wars. God did it for them. He took a few men, and he made one man as 10,000 men. to win any conflict. Imagine if the myriad of hours spent in all the ways we spent them, with all of our ICBMs, with all of our nuclear weapons. I want to tell you, God doesn't have to make a contract with any nation who's got the most power. God doesn't have to look for that nation that has the greatest prestige and power in the world and then say, I'm on your side. It looks like you're going to win. No, he says, not by might nor by power, saith the Lord, but by my, what? Spirit! If this nation would turn to God tomorrow and pray from born-again hearts, if the church of Jesus Christ would be willing to honestly pray and pray and pray, why, when God looks down upon us as a church as Franklin Avenue or any other church throughout this country and sees the minimal amount of time is spent in prayer and pleading with him for the nation we claim to love so much, it's a wonder he even looks down at it. It's a wonder he just doesn't cast it aside and say, you're a godless people. How can I help you? The Lord will cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be what? Smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way, and they'll flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessings upon thee in thy storehouse and in all that thou settest thy hand to do. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And the Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself. Oh, to God, listen, 
It's only a church. We're only a little group in all this world. I realize that. This morning here, we're, we're filled. It's glorious. But if only here these words could be fulfilled. The Lord shall establish thee as a holy people unto himself, as he hath sworn unto thee. If thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways, all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord and shall be afraid of thee. Oh, imagine what could happen. Imagine right here in our area what can happen if there's a complete consecration of ourselves to the will of the commandments of God. And he says, and my commandments are not grievous but joyous. And this is the commandment of him that sent me, that you believe on him whom he has sent. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Oh, beloved, we need deliverance from sin. But secondly, we need dedication and consecration of life. That people may what? See what you are. And then see what God can do. Great calling. Great calling. You want blessing? God has it to give to you. But we have to fit the bill first. God doesn't throw out his blessings, you know, piecemeal. Oh, no, he chooses individual ones who really love like Christ loved, want to live the Savior's life on earth, want to witness for him day by day, want to sing praises unto him, have great joy in the Lord, have a countenance that's filled with the love of Jesus, their eyes shine with the power of Christ. God wants these kind of children so that the world can see that he's God who made heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible, and he has drawn out a people for his name, and they've been born again into his family. They're his children, and they shine and want to please their God. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Oh, may God do that with us. May God do that with us this morning. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee for thy precious word. And Lord, we're so thankful thy word says that this was all promised before by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament. Lord, we've just been reading a portion of the Old Testament and we see the kind of promises you gave to Israel if they would listen and hearken to your voice. You've told us if my people which are called by my name shall turn from their wicked ways and humble themselves and pray, that you'll pour out a tremendous blessing upon that people. Now, Lord, we realize we're just a little tiny portion of this great nation we live in.
even of this community we live in. But, Father, how blessed it would be if each individual life, both young and old, shone for Jesus Christ. Father, make a shining in business. Make a shining in the home. May a mother shine to her children with the beauty of Jesus, the glory of Christ, the love of Jesus. May she shed it abroad in her heart so that the children can feel that love deep down within their breast and yearn to know the Savior that gave that kind of a love to a mother. And what we pray for a mother, we pray for a father. We pray that the children will be responsive to this kind of a love. Father, isn't it not possible that one of the great reasons for the problems in families and in this country today is because there's been so little exhibition of what Christ really is. And that when we say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and then we don't show it, that there's something wrong within our breast. We've misunderstood the Savior. He came to live his life out in us. And his life was a message of love to mankind that he came to redeem them in his blood and lay down his life for them. Touch hearts this morning. May we truly be responsive to God the Father, to God the Son, and to God the Holy Ghost. In his name we pray. Amen.